Easter eggs. Um, don't buy them at checkers apparently. And what a ripoff now. Did you, have you followed the whole thing with those marshmallow eggs? Unbelievable. So the prices have stayed the same, but the boxes have been reduced by a dozen eggs. I mean, how shocking. I'm just, I'm horrified. Um, and then apparently, it's not only that the box has been reduced in size, but now, now they're getting more fancy and they're advertising different colored marshmallow in the eggs. Have you seen those? You can get blue eggs, which is just a blue egg, I don't know. Um, and, and I don't know, the pink ones, the pink ones. And those ones are, they're, they're even less in the box than, than the other ones. It's just, uh, Easter disappointments continues to disappoint. Uh, higher in churches than never disappoints. So for, for, for a thousand years, perhaps even more than a thousand years now, this Sunday has, in traditional circles, been known as Passion Sunday. Next week, of course, is Palm Sunday, the Sunday after that, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. But for at least a thousand years, perhaps more, this Sunday has been called Passion Sunday. However, in 1970, Mr. Pope changed all that. And he set out some papal decree that this Sunday is no longer Passion Sunday. And Passion Sunday just gets rolled into Palm Sunday. And this Sunday is just Sunday number five in Lent, I think it is. Some Lutherans, some Anglicans, still celebrate today as Passion Sunday. Now, Passion, <laughs> it's a funny word. Um, it means, what, what, what does Passion mean, right? No? Nobody wants to say it. <laughs> so, so nobody minds about it. Passion means strong, it's just strong emotion, right? That tends to be what it is. You, you're passionate about something. You're, you're passionate about the food you eat. You're passionate about a particular sport team that you support. You, you, you're passionate about a particular band that you enjoy listening to, or a particular diet, or a particular restaurant. Uh, passion, of course, refers to romantic engagements as well. Fun fact, though, passion comes from the Latin word passio, and the Latin word means suffering. So when you say that you're passionate about your wife, <laughs> you really say that she's suffering. <laughs> it originally, the Latin word was originally only used to describe the sufferings of Christ. And so when Mel Gibson did his movie, The Passion of the Christ, it wasn't a movie about how passionate Jesus was about you and me. It, it, it literally meant the sufferings, the physical sufferings of the Savior, because that's what the passion of the Christ means. It literally means to suffer. So, to do with this passion, something there are some very strange practices that go with this. You see, this is this is in the middle of Lent. Um, we haven't really celebrated Lent much, but a lot of liturgical churches do, and we'll go to the whole self-sacrifice thing. You might give up chocolate for Lent, or you'll give up coffee for Lent, or you. Say I'm looking forward to restoring them to my diet on uh, Easter Sunday. I might just give them up forever. Um, but now, apparently, there's been all the self-sacrifice to meet, and this Sunday is the Sunday in liturgical churches where it turns more from my self-sacrifice to the sacrifice of Jesus. And so that's why it becomes this Passion Sunday. It's now the focus becomes increasingly on Christ. And I, I read Psalm 43 this morning, give me justice is where it starts. And that's the opening reading on Passion Sunday. 
we, it's, some people seem to think for no real known reason that it, that was the song that Jesus sang as he approached Jerusalem. Give me justice, O God, against those who are opposed to me. And the key passage on Passion Sunday in liturgical churches, which we're going to do this morning, is found in John chapter 8, verse 59. And John 8, verse 59 says this, And Jesus hid himself from them. What many Catholic churches continue to do today on Passion Sunday, and what a lot of other more liturgical churches do, is that they, they cover up the statues of Jesus in their church. Now, we don't do statues, we don't have any. Um, the cross is not really a statue that we worship. And I know that Catholics don't worship statues, we're not going to go there. Um, but part of the, the English Reformation was abolishing all forms of idolatry and getting rid of, of anything that looked like an idol. And just the whole thing of if the commands tell us that we should not make an image of God, and if Jesus is God, then why are we making an image of God? Um, we could even have some discussions about your uh, home, what are they called? You know, the manger scene at Christmas time, what's that? Nativity scene, there you go, with baby Jesus in the manger. Um, if we're not meant to have an image of God. Anyway, we're not going to get to that debate this morning. But the point is that in, in a lot of these more liturgical churches today, stained glass windows with depicting Jesus will be covered with a blanket. Um, any statue of Jesus will be covered with a sheet. Any paintings of Mother Mary with baby Jesus will be covered over, will be hidden, will be concealed. All the crucifixes with Jesus hanging on a cross will be covered because Jesus is hidden. Jesus is concealed. So one of the Catholic guys that I read this week said something about now having restrained ourselves from feasting on physical food for a few weeks, we're now going to restrain ourselves from feasting our eyes on spiritual food. And in much the same way that when we restrain ourselves, you know, I haven't eaten Brussels sprouts for a month now, I'm desperate to eat Brussels sprouts in two weeks' time. Um, in the same way, this is sense apparently of having restrained ourselves from looking at, gazing at Jesus and being seeing Jesus revealed in His glory. There stirs within me a longing to see Him and to see Him in glory in two weeks' time. So that's kind of the thinking about that. Like I said, there's a certain amount of strange things going on there. We're going to do the Passion Sunday. I'm going to read from John chapter 8, and we're going to see that this is about a lot more than just covering up statues. So if you've got a Bible, you can follow along with me, otherwise it should appear on the screen. John chapter 8, and from verse 48 this morning. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father, you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, so did the prophets. If you say anyone keeps your word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I didn't know him, I would be a liar, just like you. But I do know him. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing one day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham. I tell you the 
the truth Jesus answered yet before Abraham was sorry before Abraham was born I am at this they picked up stones to stone him but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds see you've got to understand that there's a long context to this little passage that we've just read these 10 verses we should have read the entire chapter but that would have taken an awful long time but you may remember some of what goes on in, in John chapter 8. It starts at dawn. Jesus arrives in the temple courts at dawn. And having just arrived, the Pharisees and a bunch of the other significant Jewish leaders arrive with a woman that they've caught in adultery. Now, it's dawn. They've literally dragged her out of bed. Whoever was in bed with her is nowhere to be found. That's always just an interesting thought in the story. You know, it takes two people to commit adultery. So they, they caught this woman, they bring it to Jesus, they say, here we are, we're going to stone her. And Jesus says, that's a great idea. Why doesn't the first one, why doesn't the, the one of you who is without sin be the one to kick it off? And of course, one by one, they drop the stones and walk away. And Jesus says to the woman, I'm not going to condemn you, go and sin no more. So that's early in the temple courts. The rest of John chapter 8 happens that day, as the hours unfold, as the day progresses, as the sun continues to rise, Jesus stays in the temple and begins to engage with the worshippers and the leaders and the Pharisees and whoever else is in those temple courts. And he, he says an awful lot of stuff in John chapter 8, things like, I'm the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He, he makes this claim about, I know who my father is, and they're like, no, you don't really know about Mary and Joseph and all of that, and you don't know your father. We know our father, Jesus, no, no, I know, I know the father, your father is the devil. <laughs> That's nice and friendly. He begins to rub salt into things by saying things like, you are going to die in your sins. At one point, halfway through the chapter, they say, who are you? And Jesus, what a great question. He says, you'll know who I am when I've been lifted up. You'll have to wait and see. It's all a little bit enigmatic. He says things like, follow you, and I'm sorry, follow me and I will make you free. And they're like, we're already free. And he's like, no, you're not. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's what you are. You're a slave to sin. And so he really, he really gets into insulting them. Um, you know, this whole thing of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, gentle Jesus was such a nice person, never said anything to offend anyone. Just read John chapter 8 and just see how offensive he really is. It's no wonder that they respond to him with where we started our reading this morning. You're a Samaritan. You've got a demon. So, okay, why, why are we reading this this morning? To read our passage of scripture, we're not Catholics, so we're not into the whole Passion Sunday. So what is this all about? This happens several months before Easter anyway, so it's not as if this was just two weeks before the big day. What, what's this? This story ends with what I think is probably the first real attempt to kill him. And yes, there's been lots of talk about killing him. There's plots and plans, and there's been, you know, there's been talk about this, and there's going to be a few more intentions and attempts on his life. But I think this is the first real moment where a bunch of guys actively engage in an activity whose final aim is to put him to death. And so for that reason, this passage actually kind of works as a prefiguring or a shadow of the crucifixion that is to come. He's not going to die by starting, but it's this, this seems to be to me the, the first real legitimate moment, attempt, to put an end to his life. 
Now, you've got to see the links to this, right? Don't you love the, 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 the kind of the bookends of this chapter, the beginning and the end, right? You remember how it starts with the woman dragging forth just before dawn? Now here we are a couple of hours later, and they're wanting to stone Jesus. So, random question, with what stones? Now, they're not going to be flicking pebbles at him, okay? So we're not doing that. It's because that, that, that's not going to kill anyone. That's not going to hurt anyone. Uh, they want to throw him with a half brick. Okay, that's, that's the intention here. So where are they going to find a half brick? Well, the temple courts at the moment are, are in the state of being, are in the process of being rebuilt and restored. There's lots of restoration work going on. So there's no doubt a certain amount of building material in the temple courts. But it's not just lying around in heaps. It's being kept tiny because the temple is still being used. So although there's areas that are being built, and there's building material and rubble lying around. It, I'm guessing, I don't, maybe it's just a mess, but I think that they're keeping things nice and tidy. So I don't think that they're going, we're going to throw you in a half brick, wait here while we go find one, and if they wander looking for bricks. No, no, they bend down and pick up stones to stone them. So where do they get those stones from? And I have to wonder, there's, there's nothing in here that tells me, this is just me guessing, guessing and thinking and wondering, I wonder if they're picking up the stones they're just recently dropped that were going to be used to stone the woman. And you just wonder, maybe it's not, maybe I'm reading far too much into this, but just a few hours earlier, they're going to stone the woman and they drop the stones and walk away. A couple of hours later, they pick up those same stones to stone Jesus. And then you start to think along the lines of Jesus stepping into the space that she has vacated. They won't stone her, but they really need to stone him. She is a sinner and she'll go free. But he, the righteous one, must face the same fate that she was facing. She faced their stones because she had done wrong. He faces their stones even though he hasn't. He faces their stones because he came to verse in this little passage that we read, the central part, is, is at the end of verse 53, where, where the Pharisees, the, the Jewish worshippers, whoever they are, they say to Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You can hear a tone associated with that phrase, can't you? It doesn't matter how nicely I say, who do you think you are? If after the service today I come to you and say, so who do you think you are? I mean, it doesn't matter how I say it, it's somewhat offensive, isn't it? Who do you think you are? That's really what it sounds like, doesn't it? Who do you think you are? That you can just say that, do that, behave in that way. And that's these guys looking at Jesus. Who do you think you are? And I guess to some extent that they, they have a certain amount of legitimacy in actually asking that question, right? He's just said, you're the children of the devil. Who do you think you are to say that? You're dead in your sin. Who do you think you are? You don't belong to God. How dare you? Who do you think you are to say things like that about us? Who do you think you are? And they try and answer their own question. <coughs> they say, we think you're a Samaritan. And for them, that was like, that was the major insult of the day. Um, Samaritans were 
despised group of people by the Jews, loaded with all sorts of racial connotations. It's just an ugly thing to call someone. The Samaritans were looked down upon. They were considered to be this group of people, not just because of a racial thing, but because of a religious thing of mixing a little bit of Jewish Israelite worship, Judaism, with the idol worship of the Canaanites. They had decided they don't need to worship in the temple. They can worship in their own little mountain. They don't hold to the whole Old Testament. They're just a couple of the chapters here and there. Um, and so to be called a Samaritan is really to be called a, a heretic. <coughs> Someone outside, beyond the pale, outside of the, the realms of what is true, true religion. And so they say to Jesus, you're claiming to know God, but actually you're a, you're a heretic. I think there's maybe even more of a stir in this. There's some, some commentators who think, and they're perhaps not right, uh, perhaps not wrong in saying this. Um, Jesus has just earlier questioned the legitimacy of their birth and who is your father and they were like, well, we know who our dad is, but who is your daddy? Because you don't know. And there's a hint here of your dad might as well have been a Samaritan, some wandering Samaritan who took advantage of Mary. That's kind of the slur that's going on here. It's ugly things to say. <clears throat> you know, whenever you're in an argument with someone and, and the logic is just you know, difficult to, to, to get through, the easiest And so, to kick it up a notch, they say, not only are you a Samaritan, you're a demon. In fact, they say it twice. We think you've got a demon. No, no, actually, now we know you've got a demon. And again, if, you, if you're needing to win an argument on the internet, the quickest way to do it is whoever gets to say, you're a Nazi first, wins. Right? That, that, isn't that always the case in any internet debate? It's like it's a race to see who can get to, you're a Nazi. And that obviously is just... Logic that cannot be overcome in any shape, way, or form. That's kind of what these guys are doing here. Uh, in the days before with Nazis, who else? Well, demons, there you go. You're a demon, all right. Argument over. The thing is, it's the exact question that we must be confronted with ourselves. Who do we think Jesus is? Not just who does he think he is. Who do we think he is? When we hear what, what he says about us, it, it's, yeah, um, who does he think? Because if we begin to pay attention, then just like the Jewish guys in this story, we're going to be insulted. I think a lot of us read stories like this and go, thank goodness I'm not like the adulteress. I'm a good person. Um, no one's going to drag me out of bed at dawn or at the start of anyone else's bed, even if her name is dawn. Uh, <laughs> that's just not going to happen. I'm the good guy, right? I'm one of the good guys. And so a lot of us will be like, I grew up in church, I do the right stuff. But then you look at what Jesus says to the guys who grow up in church. You look at what Jesus says to the good guys who obey the rules, who never committed adultery. Your father is the devil. You're a slave of sin. You don't belong to God. You walk in darkness. You're going to die in your sin. And it's tough to hear those things. And yet every one of us stands with these Jewish guys in the temple, and we're obeying, I'm fine. And Jesus goes, no, you're not. You're dead in your sin. You're a slave. Your father is the devil. And some of us will get very self-righteous very quickly. How dare you? How dare you say that about me? Who do you think you are? At least I'm not like that ghastly woman. But Jesus is just bearing truth to what the rest of Scripture reminds us. Romans chapter 3, there is no one who is righteous Titus chapter 2 at one time, you foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, 
of all kinds of passions and pleasures. It's the story of you and me. Confronted by Jesus, we may be tempted to dismiss his words. We, will, we may want to call him a demon. We might even say, no, no, that, that's can't be true, Chris, because Jesus is too nice. He says nice things to me. He spoke these words to nice people. And he doesn't do it because he's nasty and deliberately offensive. He does it because he must confront our true nature. And you can dismiss him as these guys did. You can call him mad and possessed and unhinged. You can just genuinely be offended and say, how dare you? That's, that's our society at the moment, right? Our society, you confront our society and sin, and our society just goes, how dare you? Who do you think you are? What gives you the right? So who do you think you are, Jesus? But Jesus says, I know who I am. I know exactly who I am. I am. I know who I am. I am. Which sounds like half a phrase, right? Now, of course, if you've read John's Gospel, then you know that one of the things that John likes to use, one of the phrases he likes to use is, I am the. And some of the ladies in Bible study have been doing the I am those in scripture. So what are some of them? I am the the light. I am the the door. The, the way. The gate. The shepherd. The truth. Right? There's a whole bunch of them. John loves it. I am the bread. I am the living water. I am the... So there's lots of stuff. We could do it on the church as well. I am the pastor. <laughs> a couple of you are going, I am the builder. I am the bass player. And Jesus goes, I am, and we're waiting for the, the what, I'm the what, Jesus, and he's just like, I am, I'm just, that's it, there is no, I am, full stop. And the Jews know where he's going with it, because I am is God's covenant name, and Jesus is going, you want to know who I am? I am Yahweh. And so he uses God's covenant name to describe and define himself. And that's what gives Jesus the right to confront us in our sin. And that's what gives him the right to, in a sense, pass judgment. And to, but, mixed in with this, this good news, right? It's not all bleak and bad and you're all sinners and going to die and it's all terrible. There's good news in this. Because he makes this declaration as well. He says, whoever keeps my word will never see death. And so, despite the judgment that he speaks on these guys, Woven into that, there is hope. And you see that right through. He says, you're slaves to sin, but the truth will set you free. He says, you're lost in darkness, but I'm the light that will lead you out into the light. He says, you're, you're children of the devil, but I can introduce you to a new father. Whoever keeps my word will not taste death. And then do you like how he says, and I kept his word. So you see that it's not just Jesus condemning us and Jesus saying how bad you are, but woven in that is, yes, you're dead in your sin, but you can be alive. Yes, you're lost in the darkness, but you can come into the light. And the response of these guys is, is not to embrace this, not to embrace life, but, but to silence him. And so they're willing to execute justice on him that they've just recently suspended from that woman. And the one who offered her life is now threatened with death. And he 
steps into her place. And the stones that were meant for her are now aimed at him. And the justice that was stored up for you and I is now pointed at him. Who do you think I am? I am. God in human flesh who confronts us confronts our sin, but does not leave us in our sin, who steps into our space, who says, who says I don't condemn, go and sin no more, who says, I'm light, follow me into light, who, who says, oh, I'm from above, whoever, but whoever does not believe in me will not have life, but whoever believes in me will live. The one who says, I am the truth, and whoever lives by the truth will be set free. It's interesting, isn't it, that right throughout scriptures, the story again and again and again is that people like the adulterers find mercy and grace. And the self-righteous pick up stones. And the sad result is that the story ends with Jesus hid himself. I don't think there's anything magical about this. I don't think Jesus had a Harry Potter invisibility cloak that he slipped on. I don't think he's, you know, beaming up Scotty, things have got hectic down here. I think it's just simply he pulls up his hoodie, mixes in with the disciples, they stick him around a corner, he hides behind a pillar, mixes, blends in with the crowds, and simply slips out of the temple. But do you sense, do you, here's a big word, do you sense the pathos in this moment? He hides himself from a man. He's just been unveiling himself. He's just been revealing himself. He's just been saying, this is who I am. I am. He's just saying, the Father's glorifying me. This is, what, this is what it's about. It's about the Father seeking my glory. And it's, it's about honor to Him. And, and He's just, I'm alive in the world. I'll bring you life. I'll set you free. I'm revealing, he's revealing Himself to them. And having revealed Himself to them and speaking about His glory to, the, to these religious people, their closed-mindedness means that He must hide Himself from them. How sad. And chapter 9 actually follows on from this. We, we often read these stories like separate little stories about Jesus. Isn't this interesting? But chapter 9 is about the man with normal poor life who can't see Jesus. And it's a very physical description of what's gone on in chapter 8. The guys who simply can't see Jesus. And chapter 9 is all about the guy who can't see him until Jesus opens his eyes. Sometimes that God hides. Have you ever feel as though God's playing hide and seek with you? We read Psalm 43, where, where the psalmist says, Where are you? Where have you gone? Why have you abandoned me? Sometimes I wonder, maybe it's not so much that He is hidden from us, but that simply we don't see what is right before our eyes. Kind of like the blind man who just can't see what's right before him. Maybe we're a bit like children playing hide and seek. You know how that goes, right? Where they hide behind the curtain and they, you know, the curtains come to their knees and their feet are hanging out and they're like, Dad won't find me here. <laughs> or kids standing in the middle of the room with, you know, you can't see me. I'm like, uh, yeah, I can. No, you can't. I can't. I wonder if we're sometimes a little bit like that. If we've got our eyes going, I wonder where God is. I wonder why I can't see him. I wonder why he's hidden from me. And he's going, Self righteous deeds, on our, our 
seeing him. He's hidden from us because we didn't have good food for that stone in our hands. And to this time, we think more about Easter, the Good Friday, is all about the cross, and then of course he's taken from the cross and put in the tomb, and there's a sense again in which he is hidden from sight, he is buried, he's, he's behind that rock, his body laid away from prying eyes, unseen. But Easter Sunday then celebrates this truth that is once more revealed, unveiled, and so that's when the Catholic churches and whatever will call the veils off the statues and whatever, so that Jesus is revealed again. And then of course is that day that is to come, that one great day when he will return in great glory and we shall see him as he truly is. But until then, we who were in darkness are able to live in his light. We who were slaves have been set free. We who were sons of the devil have been adopted into his family by the Father. We who were blind now see. And it's what we're going to celebrate this morning. We're leaving here in 10 minutes' time, and we're going down the road to my house. You want to follow me in convoy or whatever, we'll send a few people who know how to get there. Um, and we've chosen the perfect day for a baptism. Last Sunday, in fact, we could have done this yesterday. Um, we seem to do this as a church. We, we, I keep saying I'm never doing a baptism in winter, and then the Lord blesses us by in the middle of summer sending us days like this. Um, but we're going to go down to my house. We're going to get into a swimming pool. We're going to do like a, it's kind of a weird thing. Why would anyone get into a swimming pool on a day like today and go under the water and come up? And what is that about? What is it about this? It's, it's about precisely this. Two people this morning. Um, Greg and Helga are both basically saying, I was these guys. I was perhaps nice and religious. I did all the right things, said all the right things, went to church. Um, but I was lost in my sin. I was lost in darkness. And at some point, Jesus came and opened my eyes to see. Greg will tell you that that happened 40-ish years ago, 30 years ago, I don't know. And uh, Greg's waited this long because he wants to be sure. Now, he's waited this long because Greg was part of a different church tradition that didn't do believers' baptism. But he's become convicted that this is the right thing to do, that this is Jesus' command to be baptized as an expression of faith. Helga's story is not too different. Uh, also, a, a history in, in church and in religion, and then falling away and showing no real interest in, in God and faith. And then three years ago, just going, I need to go back to church. I need to reconnect with God. And she, she, she did. She went to, to one of the churches in the area. And then um, just going, it's not what I'm looking for. And not quite able to nail it down quite exactly what it is. But she, at the end of last year, Googled. Because Google is the ultimate answer for everything, right? What church teaches the Bible? Because that's what she was lacking in the church that she'd been attending. A church that was where the pastor would speak about his skiing holidays as sermon. I'd love to be able to, you know, speak about the skiing holidays, but I, I haven't had any. Um, <laughs> and she Google what church teaches the Bible, and, and Google says, Baptist churches. Isn't that awesome? And so she Googled, what's the closest Baptist church? And it was us. And so she pitched up randomly in January at the Methodist church to find the Baptist church because she needed to find the church teaches work. How that happens. Tell me that's not a miracle. 
better than that. And so, so, so Greg and, 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 and Helga this morning are both going to go through baptism. And, and, and the whole point of the, what they're doing is that they're not being changed by that. They're simply giving a physical expression of the fact that Jesus has already changed them. Brought them out of darkness into light. Brought them from, um, from, from the death of sin and the slavery of sin into, into his freedom. And we're celebrating that this morning. It's not about covering statues. It's about lifting the veil. Who do you think you are? Well, I know who he is. I am. He's come to set us free. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we want to thank you this morning that you have set us free, that you are the great I am. And Lord, even this morning too, be able to say, you, you confront us in our sin. And even though we don't want to be confronted, many of us would prefer for that to just stay in the background and can't you just be nice? We need you to confront us in our sin. And not just confront us, but to bring us into light. That not only do you confront sin, but that you that you are. So we celebrate this morning, Lord Jesus. Not just your enemies, but your, your revealing of yourself. That you have revealed the Father to us. Lord, I pray this morning for anyone who may not know you as Lord and Savior. For many this morning who may perhaps be feeling condemned. Who may well be tempted to be saved? Who does Jesus think he is to save you? By your spirit, Lord, would you apply the truth to their hearts, not just of condemnation, but of grace. Of the grace that sets us free. Amen. Let's, let's close by singing again. Um, we'll, we'll sing joyful, joyful once more because why not? Then we're going to, we don't need to pack chairs away, but we do need to sanitize them and you can chit chat for a little bit while we pack up. And as I say, about 10 minutes time we'll make our way down. No coffee today, I'm afraid, just because we wanted to not end up with people unsure whether we should come or go or stay, we're just going to go. Alright, so let's, let's sing to joyful.
thank you. You're the one who takes our sin away. And now as we leave here this morning, may we leave knowing the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.